It's time to set aside the superficial. It's time to go deeper. It's time to engage in truth. Here's John Bornstein. Well, everybody, welcome back to Engage in Truth. This is John Borchine. I'm the senior pastor of Calvary Fellowship Fountain Valley right here in Colorado Springs. And I'm so excited that you are tuning in. We are continuing on our study of the book of Revelation, chapter 20, in fact. We're almost there. We have spent a year on the, the subject, this book of, of Revelation. And I say subject because we've not just put our emphasis on the book of Revelation now. We have looked at 18 prophetic book, books of the Bible to help give a, a, a real picture of the sequence of events and how things are going to transpire. Now, of course, Scripture doesn't give us every detail, but enough information for us as the body of Christ to be looking eagerly in expectation for his coming reign. And so we look to the signs, but we're not consumed by it. Rather, we are focused on our mission and assignments while in this body to serve Almighty God to the fullness every single day while waiting expectantly for his return and knowing that it is coming soon. So we're going to talk a little bit more about that here today. Let's just recap from the last program as we addressed uh, some of what we we you know we're talking about here of this being repaid at the resurrection, if you will. Jesus spoke of this to believers of being repaid at the resurrection of the righteous for their humility, their servitude, and obedience. So what we're looking at here is the thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ our Lord. And we talked about the the wedding feast with the bride and how spectacular that is and what we're longing for and how after the rapture, we, we read in Matthew that there'll be a, a trumpet blast that goes far and wide across heaven gathering the saints to come back with Jesus Christ. He comes down on the Mount of Olives he puts an end to this battle, these series of battles of Armageddon that stretch all across Israel from most likely the Golan Heights there in the Megiddo Valley all the way to the land of Jordan at the southern end of Israel. And this massive battle that's taking place, Ezekiel 38 and 39, that tell us how long it will take place uh, for the cleanup operation thereafter. But there is this bringing back the resurrection of the believers and this reward that they are given for their faithful service. Let's just look at that one more time. This is an investment of your life when you give yourself to Jesus Christ, when you take up your cross to follow him, and there's an eternal reward, not just the resurrection, which is amazing in and of itself. I mean, let's not downplay that. The fact that we can live forever and ever in a new body with Jesus Christ our Lord in service to him and worship to Almighty God, he still wants to bestow rewards upon his faithful servants, not for salvation, but because of salvation. Let's read here 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 9 to 14. Here's what we read. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. According to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear for the day will declare it. 
because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work, which he has built on it, endures, he will receive a reward. Now, obviously talking about things that are perishable and the things that are not perishable, laying up treasures where, where neither rust nor moth can destroy it in heaven. So what is the additional reward that we will receive after the resurrection unto eternal life? Because we think of eternal life as the reward. But he actually spells out that there are quite a few rewards that he wants to give to his faithful servants, specifically even a crown. And we read that in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 4. He says, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. In fact, that's one of several citations, seven, in fact, of various crowns. The everlasting crown, one of the victor uh, in 1 Corinthians 9.25, the, the crown of the soul winner in Philippians 4.1 and 1 Thessalonians 2.19. We also see the crown of righteousness in 2 Timothy 4.8, the crown of life of James 1.12 and Revelation 2.10, and of course, the one we just read here in 1 Peter 5.4, the crown of glory. But here's the thing. You you may receive your crown as this reward of your faithful service, and, and we know we will, but it was never for the crown that you served. It was all for God. If we're really sincere about our service to Almighty God, this is not for the crown that we serve in this way. And this for this reason, I, I'm convinced that in Philippians, he tells us that anything good that comes out of us is because God willed it and did it through us. Therefore, I believe that when we receive this crown, that we will do just the same as the 24 elders who are in the throne room and where we read in Revelation chapter 4, 9 to 11, that whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne saying, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they exist and were created. Now an important point to remember is this. The true believer cannot lose their salvation. The true believer. Now you go back to Matthew chapter 7 verses 21 to 23 for an example of a false believer. Someone who looks the part but there's no repentance in them. They're going through the motions of looking like a faithful servant, but they have not repented or confessed their sin, which is one and the same before Almighty God, but a posture of reverence and repentance before God. Very similar to what the thief on the cross did, that if we confess with our mouth, Lord Jesus, and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. There is a confession with even our lips. There's a confession of the heart, a repentance of declaration that Jesus Christ is Lord, and with that, a, a, a conviction of the heart that we have broken the heart of God. And, and so you can't lose your salvation for the faithful, for the servants of Almighty God, but he tells us that we can lose our crowns. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 11, he says, hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Now, Revelation 3.11 was a call to perseverance to the overcomers that they not forfeit their rewards. So this particular instruction is, is for us. It's for those who are faithfully serving, but sometimes we get a little complacent. Sometimes we're a little lethargic, 
in our service to Almighty God. Sometimes we're comfortable warming the bench, and we don't want to be out there on the playing field. We, we don't want to get hurt. Uh, we don't want our comfort zone rattled in any way. And this is a call to perseverance, a call to get out there because you don't know how much time you have to serve Almighty God with. And, and listen to this. In addition to these crowns, we receive all the promises that Christ gave in, in Revelation chapter 2 to 4. He tells us that we have the right to eat of the tree of life in paradise with God in Revelation 2.7, that we have eternal life, immortality, that part we, we kind of got down there, Revelation chapter 2.11, but then he tells us we can eat of the hidden manna, which was in the heart, the ark, the holy of holies in Revelation 2.17, that we receive a white stone in Revelation 2.17, that was a symbol of confirmation from Almighty God, a big yes, okay? And then he tells us we get a new name, <laughs> that we have authority over nations in Revelation 2.26, that we have unity with Christ in verse 28 of Revelation chapter 2, that we receive a white robe, eternal citizenship in heaven, even a pillar in the temple with our name on it, and the Lord's new name written on us, according to Revelation 3.12 and Revelation 19.12. And we get, I can't even imagine this, the right to sit with Christ on his throne. Can you imagine such a thing? These are just a few of the many promises in addition to crowns. And after we've stood before the Lord and received our rewards, Christ then appoints us to positions of service and responsibilities during this thousand-year reign all across the globe. He calls us a royal priesthood for a reason. Just go to Revelation chapter 2, chapter 3, 5, 20, and 21, and then also check out 1 Peter chapter 2 when you get a chance. Now, at the tabernacle, there were two seats, a seat of judgment and a seat of mercy, known as the, the mercy seat. The mercy seat was located in the Holy of Holies for Jesus Christ to make atonement on behalf of the people before God the Father. The judgment seat was where Moses would hear the issues of the people before God. So Jesus now takes his rightful place on both seats of authority as atonement and judge. At the judgment seat, that's where we will stand before Jesus Christ, and he will judge the nations and reward or even remove rewards to his faithful servants. That we were to receive a reward, and here he tells us in Revelation chapter 3, make sure that no one takes that reward. He wants us to be in faithful service to him till the day we meet him. So Christ never intended to judge the nations alone. And you're thinking, wait a minute, what? This is why he chooses to delegate judgment assignments to his people all over the nations. How do we know that? Well, in Revelation chapter 20, verse 4, he says, I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. So Jesus has set up a, a system of judging the affairs of the earth during his thousand-year reign. We'll get into more about this, trust me, as we go into our study further about this thousand-year reign. We'll examine even a, a royal, a, a supreme court, if you will, of priests who receive the issues there, and then if they can't solve it, they take it to Jesus Christ. It's an amazing system. We'll get into all that. But Jesus indicated to his disciples in the parable of the Minas that some are to rule over ten cities, some five, etc. Let's look at this. Luke chapter 19, verses 7 to 19, 17 and 19. He, he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you were faithful in a very little. Have authority over ten cities." 
And the second came, saying, Master, your mina has earned five minas. Likewise, he said to him, you also will be over five cities. This is just like the judgment seat of Moses. How do we know about the judgment seat of Moses? Go to Exodus chapter 18, verses 13 to 27. Moses spent a majority of his time judging the people from morning until evening. So Jethro encouraged Moses to select capable leaders to judge the affairs of the people. We read in Exodus 18, 21 to 22. Moreover, You shall select from all the people able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, and place such over them to be rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens, and let them judge the people at all times. Then it will be at that every great matter they shall bring to you, but every small matter they shall themselves shall judge." So Jesus is going to set up a system for governing the peoples of the earth in a similar way. Within his own temple, there may be many rooms for the priests. We'll get into that. It's quite spectacular when you look at the size, the dimensions, the structure of not only the temple, but the new temple mount that is forthcoming during the thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ. And these priests will offer sacrifices unto the Lord, according to Ezekiel 43 and 45, and they will serve as a reminder of sins for the people as they worship the Lord, according to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 3, because some people said, wait a minute, so there are sacrifices that are still going on during the millennial reign. Yes, and Hebrews chapter 10, verse 3 tells us because it's for the reminder of sins as they worship the Lord Jesus, and he will be there in the in person for them to, to worship him. Now, these priests, as I mentioned before, act as a supreme court of justices, if you will. Here's what he tells us in Ezekiel 44, 23 to 24. And they shall teach my people the difference between the holy and the un- unholy, and cause them to discern between the unclean and the clean. In controversy, they shall stand as judges and judge it according to my judgments. They shall keep my laws and my statutes and all my appointed meetings, and they shall hallow my Sabbaths. So Christ will appoint many of us to be kings and priests with a judicial role. And should there be any issues we cannot resolve, these issues will go before the priests in the temple. If they can't resolve it, they take it to Jesus Christ himself to resolve it. How do we know that? From Micah chapter 4, verse 3. But let's continue on. In in Revelation chapter 20, verses 2 to 7, we are told of a thousand-year period. This is the millennium, a thousand-year period. It's used six times, and John appears to be setting up this definitive timetable of events, all relative to this thousand-year period. And someone wisely suggested about interpreting the Bible, when the plain sense makes good sense, seek no other sense. Okay, so he's setting it up for a thousand-year period of time talks about that six times, I would like to suggest that it's a thousand-year period of time. Okay, so there are four good reasons why Jesus Christ's reign will be a physical, earthly reign rather than a spiritual, heavenly one. That's often been, uh, uh, you know, debated in this particular section. Will Christ be physically here on the earth as he reigns from Jerusalem? And the answer is yes. Number one, Christ will be on the earth after he returns, according to Revelation 19, 11 to 16. And God promised the saints 
an earthly reign, according to Revelation 5.10. And at the end of his reign, the saints who reigned with him will still be on the earth, according to Revelation 20, verse 9. And then we're going to see this whole, you know, new heavens, new earth, new Jerusalem comes down. Quite spectacular. We'll get into that as well. The Old Testament messianic prophecies anticipated an earthly kingdom from 2 Samuel chapter 7, Psalm chapter 2, Isaiah 65, and Daniel 7. So again, this is a an, an earthly kingdom in which Jesus Christ presides over. So why does his reign last for a thousand years? Well, I find it interesting that the temple era, if we look at the first two temples unto God, they lasted approximately a thousand years. Not exactly, I mean, it's difficult to, to measure this. I mean, when we look at the height of Israel under David and Solomon, and our years get a little fuzzy, but fairly close. When we can pinpoint the age or date of the first temple and the second temple, we can measure that up to close to a thousand years. But during the reign of Christ, this third temple, the true third temple, not the abomination that will be set up during the end of days, but that is revealed in detail in Ezekiel chapter forty to 44, and this one will last for a thousand years. And I believe all this was predetermined at the beginning. Isaiah 46.10 tells us that, that when God established a seven-day creation in Genesis chapter 1, 1 to 31, in Genesis 2, 1 to 7, he chose to rest on the seventh day, not because he was tired, but because he blessed it and sanctified it for a reason. And this seventh day would become the holy day of the week during which the people were commanded to worship God. You go to Exodus chapter 20 and Leviticus 25 and Isaiah 58. And so many believe that the six-day creation aligns with the earth's duration of time, ending at the beginning of the seventh day as we enter into a thousand-year reign, or what you could say is a thousand-year Sabbath of the Lord. So after all, Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. You go to Matthew chapter 12, Mark 2, and Luke 6 for that, and we are reminded that Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. So this is followed by what is called the last great day when all things are made new. Well, ironically, and I don't think it's ironic, it's by design. In Revelation chapter 21, we're told that everything is made new after that thousand-year reign. So this is highlighted to great detail. Go to Hebrews chapter 4, and I think that we get some further support for this. If we examine Psalm 90, verse 4, and 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, both tell us that a day is but a thousand years, and a thousand years is but a day to the Lord. And so when God instructed Israel to keep the Sabbath day holy, they were honoring a weekly observance of what they probably didn't fully understand, of the forthcoming reign of the Messiah, of Jesus Christ, in preparation of the entrance of God's people into the presence of God, forever and ever. It always pointed to Jesus Christ. All 613 ordinances of the Torah, only he could fulfill them. All 355 prophecies of Jesus Christ, I don't think it's coincidence that that was all compiled in the Greek through the Septuagint roughly 80 years before Christ was born incarnate. Okay, so all of it pointed to Jesus Christ. So the whole time they were worshiping on the Sabbath, little did they probably understand that that was really possibly giving them a foreshadowing of the fact that Jesus Christ would reign for a thousand years, a thousand year Sabbath. So bottom line, we need a thousand year Sabbath to prepare all the overcomers to walk with God forever. So at the end of this thousand year period, there will be a final purging of all who do not follow Jesus. Remember, we talked about that last time, that after the battle of Armageddon, after all the, the, the judgments and so forth that have come upon the 
the earth, especially during those final seven years, at least half the population of the earth has died, but there's still a significant number of people still on the earth. And that that means there'll be Christian, i.e. those who come back with Jesus Christ in their immortal body to serve him faithfully all across the world, are now walking amongst those who are still mortals, these who have not yet accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior. And so they will be looking to the direction of the faithful of God, whom he's appointed all over the earth, to point to the worship of Jesus Christ. This is where he separates the goat from the sheep and so forth. So this is quite a spectacular time. And they they have not yet made a decision to follow Christ. And they will number the sands of the sea, according to Revelation chapter 20, verse 8, for those who don't follow or choose not to follow Jesus Christ. And this is after he has reigned for a thousand years. I can't even imagine such a thing, that Jesus Christ will be reigning on the earth for a thousand years, says water flows from his temple, from his throne, and revitalizes the Dead Sea, completely transforms the landscape of what we know of Israel today, and it's flourishing, and it's it's a spectacular sight for the whole world to see as we come up and worship Jesus Christ. And he tells us in Zechariah that we're even to come up during the Feast of Tabernacles, all of the world to worship him. And at the end of this thousand-year period, and we'll talk about this a little bit more, people will still reject him to the numbers that they look like the sands of the sea. And we'll read in Revelation 21.3 that God the Father will be with the people and walk with them after that incident occurs, after God deals with all of these who betray Jesus Christ to his face, who number the sands of the sea, then all will be made new like he did at the Garden of Eden, and he'll walk the soil once again. Now, the big question, if the plan of God is a 6,000-year period of time, if we're looking at six-day creation that correlates with a 1,000 years for each day and roughly 6,000 years before a 1,000-year Sabbath, i.e. the millennium, then how long do we have before Jesus Christ comes? That's always the big question, right? How much time before Jesus Christ returns if we just do the math of the Bible? Well, according to the durations of time in the Bible— We can go all the way back to Adam, and we can track roughly 5,912 years, give or take, of human history. Now, we are told that no man will know the day or the hour, so I'm not even going to try that. But we can look to this and start to do the math and go, my goodness, he could be here fairly quickly. The evil one has tried to confuse men by attempting to change the times and seasons for a long time, according to Daniel chapter 7, verse 25. So today we operate on a 365-day calendar, while the timeline of the Bible in that calendar seemed to operate from a 360-day calendar. And that five-day variance became official in roughly 45 B.C., called the Julian calendar, later modified and called the Gregorian calendar in 1582, which was would suggest that the Bible is ahead of our modern calendar by possibly even another 29 years. So that means we could be looking at the year 5941, according to the Bible timeline, leaving roughly 59 years before the return of Christ. But we didn't account for leap years and other calendar variances. And we have another conflict with regard to the Hebrew calendar that, that puts us, you know, just 
past 5778, they're about 5779, somewhere in there. So this all challenges us with trying to track the timeline. Genesis 5, 1 to 3 tells us that this is the book of the genealogy of Adam. And the day that God created him, he made him in the likeness of God. He created the male and female and blessed them and called them mankind. And the day they were created, and Adam lived 130 years and begot a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The Bible, however, doesn't give us the date or duration of time before that measure was uh, accounted to him. Did he did did he start to track the numbers of the of years after Adam sinned? We don't know how long exactly was he in the garden. I mean, Adam lived 130 years, begot Seth after Cain and Abel, and then he lives for another 800 years, according to Genesis 5-4, for a long life of 930 years, as we're told in Genesis 5-5, during which he had many sons and daughters. So from what point forward can we track to Noah and beyond? We don't know. I mean, how, how long that was exactly did it was 930 years from the day that Adam was created or from the day that sin entered into Adam we don't know so again we can't you know really pinpoint exactly how much time we have and rightfully so uh but you know, it, it, it's a, it was only about seven years, as we, just on a side note here, for the Book of Jubilees uh, it tells us that. But again, that's a non-canonized text, so we've got to be very careful on those particular citations. But we can get an idea that it wasn't a very long period of time that Adam and Eve were in the garden. But all of this creates a dilemma when tracking the coming of the Lord, and rightfully so. I, I, I think God wants us completely focused on our mission, not on our exit strategy. If we look at Matthew 24, 36, he says, no one knows the day or the hour when these things will happen, not even the angels in heaven or the son himself, only the father knows. And Christ himself would reiterate this point again in Matthew 25, 13, where he says, watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the son of man is coming. So again, he says that only the father knows. And then he tells us the son of man is coming. You don't know the day or the hour. Don't even try to figure it out. It's coming. But if the the theory of the days of creation are aligning with the timeline of the earth before all things are made new, according to Revelation 21 and 22, we can be certain that Christ is coming soon. So therefore, we must live in a posture of readiness, which means active service. It's what we're accountable for, to have an active prayer life, an active service mindset to the King of Kings. He tells us in a twinkling of an eye, that's like a billionth of a second, that we will be transformed at the last trump. I mean, this is not giving us a lot of time. I mean, you don't even have time to think about it. Suddenly, you're just going to be transformed. It's done deal. So we have to be as productive for the King of Kings, for the kingdom of God in the now. And I hope we're all convicted by that. So as we look forward to the thousand-year millennial reign of Jesus Christ, it could happen very soon. Soon, very soon. So let's be ready is the body of Christ. We're just getting started. we got a lot more to cover in Revelation chapter 20. I hope you're excited by what you've heard already. Again, go back to calvaryfountain.com if you want to re-listen to the prior broadcast on this Revelation study. Again, we've been in this for about a year now. So a lot of content there at calvaryfountain.com. We want to equip you and prepare you and go and do small groups and, and other teachings all across the world. Take this. It's yours. Uh, you'll find the videos there, the sermon notes. Use it. It's a God has given us this information for a revelation, not a riddle. He's telling us what we need to expect. Let's be prepared as the body of Christ. Again, if you'd like to worship with us at Calvary Fellowship, 
Fountain Valley. Services are at 10 a.m. Learn more at calvaryfountain.com. God bless you.